Good evening, everybody. Uh, our colloquium on violence and non-violence. And uh, today we will focus on martial arts. We, our guest, uh, distinguished guest, Paul Borman, is a specialist in the field of martial arts studies. I, I will not waste time by <laughs> talking too much. The, uh, the title of the presentation today is Reorienting Violence, Self-Defense Training, Orientalism and the Sublime. So welcome, Paul Bowman. Oh, um, thank you. Thank you very much, Bernard. And um, it's a, it was a real um, honor to, to be invited. Um, and uh, I'm really sorry that I can't uh, physically be there in person. I had hoped. I've always wanted to visit Vienna. Um, but maybe maybe next time. Um, so um, I've shared my screen. Can you, you can see the screen? Uh, hopefully the, the, the PowerPoint. I should maybe just minimize some of that now. Um, so... Actually, I think I would like to be able to see people. So I will, there you are. That's good. I like that. I can see you a little bit in the corner of my screen now. So I can see there are people listening um, or pretending to listen. Um, so <laughs> thank you. So my um, my title, uh, as Bernard will attest, um, I, I could not settle on a title. Uh, he had to hassle me again and again to make me um, choose a title. So the title that I settled on was reorienting violence, self-defense training, orientalism, and the sublime. But I've struggled with titles because um, I'm trying to combine a number of different research interests. And it feels a bit like, you know, the song Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Um, and and um, when the, when, when, the lead singer was devising that song everyone thought he was insane and he couldn't explain it to people and they played the song to the record company and they said no way this just isn't going to work it feels like I'm doing something like that and, and I've struggled with trying to be able to communicate to people what my project is so it started off I thought I was going to write about orientalist physical culture I wanted to write about reorienting violence Self-defense, I have a long interest in self-defense. I've long wanted to, to write about self-defense. And eventually I hit upon the title, The Sublime Object of Self-Defense. Um, and this title was inspired by Slavoj Žižek's um, book, The Sublime Object of Ideology. Um, but I think that the most fundamental concept um, that interests me is the notion of, of, of the reorienting of violence. Martial arts uh, and, and self-defense are, are very much um, informed by violence. They're about violence. They're the study of violence, but they're not violence in and of themselves. It's, it's um, much more complicated than that. So I've got a range of themes that are all fighting for attention uh, and fighting for prominence um, in in my research. So I'm interested in the question of violence. 
I'm not really interested in getting involved in a kind of dictionary definition or a kind of ontology of violence um, because I think that it's sort of in some senses often obvious but also radically perspectival and it's, it's a very good descriptive term but it's not a very good analytical term. Um, I'm interested in the relationship between martial arts and violence. Um, I've done a lot of research um, into the history of, of self-defense and self-defense theories and self-defense approaches but I am also interested in the connection with Orientalism the connection between physical practices like martial arts and the tendency towards Orientalism. Um, and during the pandemic, I became very interested in the work of the um, philosopher, the German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk and his notion of, of anthropotechnics, anthropotechnics, um, which is really the, the, the making, the technological making of the human. Um, and quite late in the day, I realized I was very interested in the concept of the sublime as well. And it was kind of like an explosion of, oh my God, this, the concept of the sublime enables me to, to see the connections between things, to see a set of new connections um, between things that perhaps ha not many people have noticed before or not noticed um, in a clear way. So my Google Drive, and I'm attempting to formulate this book, it's a real jumble, it's a real mess. I'm writing about Bruce Lee again, I'm writing about Orientalism, self-defense, spirituality, New Age spirituality, conspiracy theories, as all of these different topics are kind of fighting to become the dominant, the dominant um, topic of the book. Um, but I guess that the, the key concept um, as I mentioned, is the notion of reorienting. Um, and the reason I'm interested in the concept of reorienting or the, or the theme of reorienting is that we might think of, say, self-defense or martial arts. Let's stick with self-defense. There is a difference. Um, people who do martial arts might think that they do self-defense, but self-defense experts and instructors would probably contest that and deny it and say, no, you don't do self-defense at all. It's a much more complex field. The thing that um, interests me about self-defense is that it, it's, it has an investment in violence, but it's anticipatory. Self-defense training is like a preemptive anticipation. It's an anticipatory response to the possibility of violence. And I think that that's a very, very important distinction between it being violence or it being um, invested in violence. Self-defense training is always future-facing. It's oriented towards a future possible event. Um, and rather than evincing or, or demonstrating a desire to do violence, self-defense training seems to really demonstrate a desire to be able to prepare for violence, to master violence, or to ward it off in some way, to, to be able to squash it, to, to kind of get rid of that violence, whether violently or, or not, or with other forms of force. But then, and this is, I think this is almost invariable, as soon as you become involved in, in training, even if it's training for violence, this has transformative effects on you as a person, on the subject who trains. 
So the act of training, that repetition, that repetitious disciplinary reiteration of exercises and training is what Sloterdijk would call anthropotechnics. And it's not just learning how to do something better. It's actually transformative of the person doing it. So what can often happen, and this happens with anything, any hobby, any practice, any exercise regime, anything that you do, it opens onto a new world of concepts and values. Training in martial arts or self-defense, much like anything else, introduces whole new worlds, whole new vistas of achievement structures, of value hierarchies, new values, new ethical investments, new pleasures, all manner, all, and all manner of victories, all manner of new kind of productions of subjectivity. So self-defense training and martial arts induce a reoriented relation to violence and it's also in relation to a violence that may never arrive. Self-defense training is the study of violence. It has a relationship to violence but it is not in and of itself violent and those who do it don't have any necessary connection with um, violence. But I also chose the word reorienting um, to invoke some other concepts, to kind of connote, to conjure up some other things. Orientalizing and Orientalism being, being the main concept. I mean, if you think about, um, if you, you can imagine a kind of narrative story, uh, an origin story of someone wanting to do martial arts. Maybe they Maybe they're fearful of violence or they want to feel more strong and more, more confident. And so they go to, to learn martial arts and that martial art may be ostensibly Asian, Chinese or Japanese or Korean or Thai or from the Philippines or wherever. And you enter into a world of Orientalism, it, it, you know, unwittingly, maybe unintentionally. Many people go to martial arts for Orientalist reasons for these fantasies about the mystical East and mystical Asia and the wisdom of the masters and so on. So one of my other abiding questions, one of the other questions that I kind of constantly come back to is why is the hold of Orientalism so tenacious in and around so much martial arts discourse? So many martial arts are absolutely steeped in Orientalism um, uh, I'm assuming you know something about Orientalism. Um, I'm looking at uh, the classroom. Um, I don't know what subject you've studied. I mean, if you've never heard the term before, just just shout. Someone tell someone to interrupt me, and I shall say more about Orientalism. Um, I'll I'll give a, a little quick definition in case it is all new to you. But Orientalism uh, is was first identified by Edward Said, most famously in his book Orientalism in 1978, in which he argued that the way that the West, that Europeans, North Americans study the East, and by which he meant the Middle East, but we can extend that further East, um, is one which is based on a lot of stereotypical preconceptions, romanticizing, uh, simplifying, generalizing, and that, that this has common shared repeated structures and genres of thought. So Orientalism is kind of an inherently biased misrepresentation of um, Asia, for, instance, for example. So that's what we mean by Orientalism. And Orientalism isn't racism. Uh, it isn't negative 
Saeed would argue that many of the Orientalists that he studied loved Asia. They, 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 loved, they loved the countries they studied and the cultures they studied. But his point is they romanticise it. They stereotype it positively. They, they, they fetishise it. In, in, and that this has all sorts of um, problematic consequences for the way that we think about, think about different cultures and different peoples. Um, so Orientalism in martial arts is rife. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. People are deeply invested. Um, Westerners, but also people in East Asia, are deeply invested in ideas of Oriental wisdom, timeless Oriental wisdom, and so on. Timeless Oriental wisdom. Um, and what interests me is the way that so much, what we might call aestheticized violence, aesthetic violence, martial arts, stylized violence, is often connected with the idea of spirituality, or a kind of deepness and profundity, and that this falls into an Orientalist logic, it falls into an Orientalist genre. It's really tenacious discourse in martial arts, and it won't go away. So I wanted to um, think about a different way of approaching the question of the Orientalizing and the Orientalism uh, of so much martial arts, discourse and what I decided to do was to look at authors uh, and experts who are really kind of if not hostile to that way of thinking to that martial arts orientalist approach very critical of it so I look at what they have to say about it so I want I decided to explore approaches that effectively renounce Orientalist and spiritual discourse to see what they have to say about aesthetic violence, martial arts, the aestheticization of violence and martial arts. And I decided to look at the most pragmatic self-defense discourse to see what um, to see what such authors have to say about it. Um, one of the books that is perhaps well, perhaps the most highly regarded self-defense book in the English language is arguably Rory Miller's 2008 book Meditations on Violence, a comparison of martial arts training and real-world violence. Um, now this book is... Um, Rory Miller himself has written many books since then and he kind of regards this as a kind of like a, a therapeutic kind of vomit like he said, like he just kind of, it all just spewed out of him because he'd gone through so much trauma and so much violence. And he wrote this book, not for any particular reason, but just to kind of get it off his chest. And one of his friends sent it to a publisher and it went on from there. Um, but still today, this is, this is regarded as one of the most important um, and insightful books about self-defense and about real world violence. So um, I wanted to to just look at this book and to say to, to, to look at what this book has to say about martial arts and the difference between martial arts and violence. Um, and he's, it's, it's tricky to summarise what Rory Miller has to say about the differences, the key differences between real-world violence and martial arts. But essentially... His argument is that, well, I'll read these quotations. I put these quotes in for a, for a reason because I think they're good. This is, this is all quotations from Rory Miller's book, uh, Meditations on Violence. So first of all, 
The unexpectedness of an attack can negate nearly any skill. You psych up for training, for competition. You have time to use breathing techniques to adjust your adrenaline balance in class. But an assault happens while you are in your 9 to 5 mind, when your brain is dealing with bills or shopping lists or lost car keys. The notion of the duel about, you know, like in a film you get a bad guy and a good guy and they face off and they put their fists up and they have a duel, right? Or like it's like a playground fight. He said that's a myth. That happens occasionally. He calls it a monkey dance. It's more normally a status thing. But a real attack, predatory violence, where someone wants something from you, whether that be, you know, whatever that be, from money to, to any other form of attack, that's an ambush. It's going to be an ambush. It's not going to be, you know, I challenge you to a duel. Let's meet at dawn, right? It's not going to be like that. And he argues that what happens in the real world is that you are completely overwhelmed by a rush of chemicals. He calls it the chemical cocktail. He calls it an effect, a chemical cocktail. And this is a, a quote again. When this effect hits, your body and mind change. This is one of the hardest things to address in training. The mind you train with will not be the one you have when attacked. This is a key problem. Very often, martial arts are an attempt to come up with a logical, mental answer to a chaotic, visceral pro problem. Skill technique degrades under stress. It degrades a lot. If you've ever heard or said, if it was for real, I would have done better, you've bought into a huge lie. When the stakes are higher, people do much, much worse than when the pressure is low. Rory Miller is a martial artist, and he has a massive critique of martial arts, which is that they are completely abstract, completely hypothetical. It's not anything, nothing like real violence. And real violence is nothing like what you've trained for in your karate or jujitsu or even your MMA class. It's anyway, we can talk about grey areas like Krav Maga training if you want. If there's any martial arts experts uh, in the room, I can't see who's in the room. And then it, this brings me to, so, so I was interested in reading Rory Miller, the ultra-pragmatist, ultra-realist, because also in this book and in other books, in other, in other self-defense books, you get to this point where it has something very, very in common with the highest myths or fantasies or ideals of the most um, sublime martial arts discourse and this is the concept of mushin it's a japanese concept meaning no mind so this is a section uh, where he talks about mushin which which is like spontaneity which is which and i'll and I'll, I'll say more about this in a minute but let me read this it is very very easy for students and teachers of martial arts to either deny that this affect this chemical cocktail exists or to pretend that they can train it away Flat out, breathing control only works to control the effects if you have time to use it. And if you have time to take a series of breaths in a specific way to calm yourself down, that time and effort would usually be better spent leaving. Visualisation works to give you a plan, but doesn't, to my experience, take the edge off the adrenaline. You can believe that if you train hard, you'll be okay. But do not let yourself believe that if you train hard, your body won't have the natural physiological reactions. Some rely on the concept of mushin. 
Mushin is the concept that your body will do what it needs to do with the conscious mind turned off. The state does exist. It is very useful. It comes from dedicated, repetitive training. I can't say it won't be there for you. If you have either experienced a lot of attacks or the particular attack matches your training very, very closely, it might. Don't count on it. So Rory Miller's point is that this is another part of his critique of martial arts. You, if you are taken by surprise or presented with something you don't understand, you will freeze. Uh, fight, flight, freeze, right? Are, are the main kind of reactions. Other sociologists talk about like a pre-conflict tension that it's actually incredibly hard in the real world by surprise or premeditated to start fighting, to start hitting, kicking, stamping, smashing. It's incredibly hard for that to get going. And if you're blindsided, you'll probably freeze unless you've trained for that specific exact situation. And even then, you still might not work. You might just freeze. People freeze when when something's going on, and it gives lots of psychological reasons for that. But what's interesting is the concept of Mushin, the idea of sp this spontaneous, um, um, spontaneous moment of, of your body just behaving perfectly. Now, film and media try to capture this, and the best example, not the best example in the world, but a really, really great example comes from The Last Samurai. So um, Tom Cruise is Nathan Aldgren, um, an American who is in Japan in the Meiji era, um, and he's been training with the samurai in sword fighting. He's walking home one night, um, and this happens. So we watch this.
So, um, so that's Mushin. So we see, um, so we see Nathan Alger and Tom Cruise walking along, and it all kicks off, and he, and 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 then he actually stops to reflect on that. He's like, "Wow, what what actually happened there? I, I I don't even know. Like he wasn't aware of what happened." And you see him. There's the immediate flashback where he kind of worked it out in slow motion. And I mean, the use of the use of slow motion is is a um, a bit of a cinematic cliche for for demonstrating speed and, and and so on. But nonetheless, it's like his body just did it. His training just kicked in. And this concept of, of of no mind, of this spontaneity, of this this lethal weapon, disciplined, the training comes out and you're perfect, you're a perfect weapon, um, is the highest ideal of the most orientalist martial arts. It's the it's a fetish concept. It's the ultimate ideal that this will happen, um, which is not to say that it isn't it isn't real. So Mushin um, may be orientalized, but this isn't compulsory. So this is a, another quotation um, from Rory Miller. There's, I've got two of these examples. Many years ago, there was a guy in a cell. So Rory Miller was a what he called, was called a corrections officer. He w- worked in these high security prisons. Uh, in America, so there's a lot of violence a lot of the time. So every day, you know, he, he was having fights. There were attacks. They had to charge into cells and etc. etc. Lots of violence in his job. Many years ago, there was a guy in a cell screaming threats. He was on drugs, either meth or PCP, and or he was psychotic. I opened the door, spun him around, swept his feet, and knelt on his elbow and neck. It all took about a second, maybe two. The officer who followed me in, a rookie looked at my free hand and whispered, Sarge didn't even spill his coffee. I looked down and sure enough, I had a full coffee cup. It was a travel mug with a lid. This isn't a Jackie Chan movie. I took a sip while he put the handcuffs on. That was when I realised it was just a job. Now, what this describes is that perfect spontaneity of, of, of embodied technique, highly refined, highly perfect. But the last sentence... I love because you could easily from that point kind of flip into Orientalism or flip into this kind of sublime discourse of, of, of you know, that was when I realised I was the superlative master of, of of a prison martial arts or something, right? But he just goes, that was when I realised it was just a job. That's such an interesting discursive flip if anyone's interested in, in kind of um, literary analysis. I think that's a genius twist at the end. Here is another one, which I think also describes the sublime, the twilight zone of violence. I very rarely talk about the twilight zone of violence, the incredibly weird things that happen, some seemingly impossible. One of those stories is about the time I saw a threat start to punch at my partner. Everything went in slow motion. I took two long steps, shoved my partner out of the way and caught the fist in midair. By conventional wisdom, this was impossible. Action beats reaction, and I didn't start to move until after the threat had started the punch. In addition, you can't take two long steps and push someone out of the way in the time it takes him to throw a short left hook. But that one time I did. That experience has always been in the twilight zone. How the hell did that happen? How strange is that? Looking at it from this perspective, it was just permission and initiative. And the question becomes, why don't I do that all the time? Again, 
Another little twist at the end. I, I, I love that, that kind of bringing it back down to... This is a pragmatic, practical issue here. But what this, what he, when he uses the concept of Twilight Zone, he's talking about Mushin, he's talking about No Mind, he's talking about sublime experiences. Now, if, if, if people in the room um, aren't steeped in Western aesthetics, I, I will say much more about the concept of the sublime, um, just in case people aren't aware of it. The sublime isn't beauty, it's not beautiful it's not it's not beauty the sublime is awesome it is awe inspiring it's the power of a storm it's 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 the power of a mountain it's the power of something that is terrifying in its magnificence you might look at a sword and go well, that's beautiful it's not beautiful it's sublime because it's terrifyingly lethal Right, it, it, that's what the sublime is. It's something that is, and the experience of the sublime in all of the major traditions, uh, from Burke through Kant through Hegel through, um, you know, you name it, um, involves the kind of reflection on an event afterwards. Just as we see Tom Cruise reflect after he's he's carried out that amazing piece of uh, of, of lethal swordplay. He goes, wow, he's having a kind of moment of sublime reflection there. The sublime is a moment of reflection. So is the sublime a helpful term for the Mushin Twilight Zone of violence? I think that it is because martial arts and self-defense training are rich in sublime experiences or experiences that you can regard as sublime. So when you first spar in MMA or you first roll in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or you first do um, randori in, in, in Judo or something like that, you're faced with this chaos that is completely and utterly overwhelming. That's a sublime experience, or it can be, depending on your relation to it. Um, every time you roll, seriously, every time you fight, every time you spar, it's like a near-death encounter. It has the same physiological effects. If someone's choking you out in jiu-jitsu or judo, uh, your body doesn't know the difference between, oh, this is just play, this is consensual, we're, we're okay with that. It's like the, it's, it's as powerful. It's a near-death experience. You can at times have these experiences of mushin. You have this time, these moments where your body just behaves so perfectly in the context that it's kind of like a, a, an amazing thrill to thrill based on surviving, surviving mortal danger. And this is one of the characteristics of the sublime that most of these big aesthetic theorists of the of the 18th and 19th centuries attributed to the sublime. Normally, they were out mountain climbing or sailing or something like that, and then they were like, "Wow, that was sublime." But it can be applied to combat, and I think that the ex these experiences are what keep keep people coming back to it they are what people they are what make people want more people want to compete and spar hard and fight hard not necessarily because they crave glory and trophies and titles but because there is something inexpressible in the intensity of that encounter so the other connection that there's another connection here which is my last point on this slide, which is um, I've written, and it's surely more than mere coincidence that the sublime in Western culture or Western philosophy or literature has been tropologically, it's been 
kind of in a literary mode and an artistic and aesthetic mode been associated with the East, at least since the high point of Romanticism. If you read some of those Romantic poets, if you read, read Coleridge, you read a poem like Kubla Khan, it's all about the sublime experience and it's all about the East. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree. It's in the East and read Kubla Khan, it's a beautiful, I'm going to make my students read Kubla Khan this term. It's a, it's, that's what the poem is about. It's about an Orientalist um, sublime. So I've been talking for maybe half an hour or so. I'm going to finish in, in three or four minutes. Um, this is my conclusion, or this is, this is some of my conclusion. Um, the sublime, the, the, the aesthetic philosophical concept of the sublime, names what today you'd call an affect in affect studies, affect theory. Because um, it's produced materially by a situation, by um, a context. It might be to do with climbing a mountain. It might be to do with being on the battlefield. It might be to do with... It's produced by something real. And it's a, it's a capacity to alter and, uh, you know, and to affect people. So it's an affect. It produces emotions. It produces a physical, emotional um, response. So this affect helps account for the non-violent attraction to violence. I mean, I um, am I'm completely addicted to martial arts. I'm completely addicted to sparring. I'm completely addicted to what other people might think of as fighting or violence. But um, I have a T-shirt that was given to be, me by my colleague, um, Alex Channon, who has a, um, a, a project called Love Fighting Hate Violence. And my T-shirt says, Love Fighting Hate Violence. I'm drawn to that, that it isn't violence, but I'm drawn to, to the martial arts version of it, even the self-defense games of it. I'm not drawn to violence. I'm horrified by violence. But training itself, even if it's ostensibly for violence, is not violent. It's not violence. Rather, training, self-defense training, martial arts training, is a practice that fosters a deep, identity-changing investment in that training itself, in that world, in that game, that language game, that, that bodily game. Um, and this is led by the experience of, of, of a range uh, of intense, affective experiences that tick all of the boxes in order to be seen as sublime. Um, so an investment in sublime experiences can be seen as integral to all manner of martial arts and self-defense practices. Um, and although modern self-defense practices tend to be resolutely anti-Orientalist, the sublime can still be seen to structure their discourses in profound ways. So those are the, the main points that I wanted to make. Um, I hope that, um, I think that's the end of my slide. Yeah, I'll stop, stop that share. Um, so I, I hope that uh, you have some questions because what I really need from you, my friends, is a way to, to kind of pitch this to a publisher that makes sense, <laughs> okay? So that's your task for me. Um, thank you very much.